I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello, you're listening to episode two of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to David Cohen. David has more than 16 years of experience in the areas of security integration, architecture, assessments, programming, forensic analysis, and investigations. He started out as a penetration tester, then moved to digital forensics. Currently, he's a partner at GC Partners in Dallas, Texas, which is a full-service digital forensics investigation company and has experience working in a wide variety of environments ranging from high-security military installations to large and small private sector companies. David is also one of the most passionate and active contributors within the cybersecurity and forensic communities. I look at David's contributions and think he either doesn't sleep or there's a cloning facility in Dallas, Texas that has produced several versions of David who are all running around outputting awesome contributions. Here's just a short list of what David does to give back. He is a regular speaker at conferences. He ran his blog, Hacking Exposed Computer Forensics Daily, which included a weekly forensic challenge. He is a red team captain for the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition, has his own regular video podcast, Forensic Lunch. He's authored several books, is a SANS certified instructor. He also developed Triforce ANJP, which is a forensic software package for parsing NTFS journals. He is a two-time Forensic Forecast Award winner. And when he's not doing all this, he's a dedicated family man and barbecue aficionado. There's zero chance this is one person. So in this interview, we will discuss how he does accomplish all this, why he moved from pen tester to forensicator, being an expert witness, how to hire good talent, how the development of Triforce was a community effort, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you. All right. And I'm joined by David Cohen on cybersecurity interviews. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing well. Great. And, and you're going to have to uh, to correct me if I get any of this wrong, but I, I'm going to go down <laughs> go down the list. But you're, you're a partner at GC Partners. That is correct. Uh, you're you're a father and barbecue aficionado. This is also true. Uh, a regular speaker at conferences. Unfortunately, you've, sometimes. <laughs> you've done a daily blog. I have. Red team captain of the National Collegiate Cyber Defense Competition. Which is a lot of fun. Uh, the Forensic Lunch video podcast, which you do fairly, fairly regularly on, on Fridays. Mm-hmm. Um, you've written two or three books, something like that. Uh, yeah, develop Triforce yep. and teach on a regular basis. You're making us all look bad in the industry, David. <laughs> how is it that you have possibly this much time? I, how, how do you do it? Like, how, so, what's, what's the driving the, the, force? The thing to realize is how long of a time period this is stretched out over. So, fair enough. Fair enough. The first book came out in 2004. The second book came out in 2009. The next book came out in 2012. And then I've contributed to two other books, but not that were actually mine uh, in the meantime. Uh, But no, I mean, before I had kids, you know, you had this amazing amount of free time. uh, And I enjoyed the free time that I had. And I used it a lot for uh, 
checking and, and understanding and, and doing forensics because it was for me uh, something that I generally enjoyed doing and, and was generally curious about and trying to learn more about. And, and then once I had kids, um, the hours after they went to bed before I fell asleep became uh, my, my time to actually get things done. Gotcha. But you originally started out more as, if I believe, in the 90s, but as, as a pen tester before you got yes. more into forensics. How did that come about? So I was a pen tester uh, when a buddy of mine uh, named uh, Brian Martin actually gave me a call. And he said, uh, hey, we're we're looking to hire some people in Colorado Springs. Want to know if you you know are interested in, in going for an interview for a, for a job to be a pen tester? And, and it's at, at the time it sounded like an, an amazing kind of thing because you know this is the '90s. I didn't realize forensics even existed. And you know somebody was saying, hey, we'll 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 pay you to you know come figure out how to you know break into computers. I was like, well, that sounds like fun. So uh, I did that. Uh, let's see, in '96 through. Uh, 90, let's see, well, I guess my, my, the, the, the job that I had that had pen testing as a primary service, I stopped doing in 2002. Uh, so between 96 and 2002, uh, I was pen testing and I didn't actually get started, uh, doing forensics, uh, officially until 99. How, how did that even kind of, kind of come about? What was the cutover? So it's it's actually a pretty good story. Um, so I was doing the pen testing stuff, and and the pen testing it's it's fun, and there's a reason why so many people are attracted to it because you know you get to figure out something, you get in, you're doing something you're not supposed to be able to do, uh, but unfortunately then it comes down to the end where you actually have to then explain to someone what you did, and you find out they don't care. Um, so we we're doing this you know for a number of years, working with clients, doing different stuff. And um, one of the, the, the people that I met actually at an Africa, uh, FBI InfraGuard meeting um, where I did a presentation showing, you know, how you can break into things. Uh, he was a physical security person. His name was actually Bill Bessie. He's a, still a friend, a great guy. And uh, Bill called me up one day and he said, hey, you know, you're good with computers. And I'm like, well, yes, yes, Bill, I'm, I'm, that's what I do. And he said, I have a CTO and we think he's spying on the other executives. You think you could figure it out? And so I said uh, the answer, what I've said in my entire career that has gotten me into either trouble or success. I said yes without really thinking about how I was going to be able to do it. So uh, I said yes. Uh, and then I went into this office environment and started talking to the people who worked there, uh, who were, uh, had some knowledge of what was occurring and why they were suspecting of this CTO who is somehow no longer the CTO, but still employed, but still an executive. Uh, and as we started going through and we got his computer and started getting the details together, uh, I was really lucky as this was my first investigation um, that he actually was a meticulous bastard. Um, is, is that okay to say? Oh, that's fine to say. Okay. Um, in that he actually kept all of the key logs that were being sent to him in a special folder in his inbox. Um, and he kept it on the company mail server. Convenient. Uh, and then as I started looking into him, he is probably still one of the the worst suspects I've ever investigated as far as all the different things he was doing. Because then we found out not only was he keylogging, but he was uh, taking screenshots of the CEO's computer at, while he was at home. He was insider trading. He was uh, using the corporate accounts to um, solicit adult services while he was traveling. Uh, he was supporting the lives of three other young men using corporate internships. I mean, it went on and on and on as we kept digging into this guy. He was just just not a good person. 
Uh, and so as this went on and we kept bringing this back to the company, they were kind of worried because apparently he was kind of known in the community and they're worried he was going to you know, take a take a stab on them at them on the way out. Uh, so we finally found the one thing that they could go to him with that they knew he'd go away quietly. And that is we found a letter that he wrote to his parole officer uh, from a former class B felony that he had in the state of New York where he said that he thought he overpaid his restitution. He was asking for money back. And apparently he never disclosed to his employer that he was a felon. Nice little gotcha on that. So they told him, if you don't go away quietly, <laughs> we're going to let everyone know you're a felon. And he went away. Very so good. after that, I was hooked. I was like, this is amazing. I just got to, you know, go through someone's life and figure out all the stuff they were doing. And someone actually cares about the result. And, you know, there's a whole other field here that I really don't understand. Uh, and so from there, uh, at the end of it, there was actually someone brought in who was called the the interrogator. He was a civil interrogator, which is a role I didn't even know existed at the time. And I ha still haven't met many since. But he came in and he went through our report. And he looked at the report. He talked to the guy. You know, he got the answers. And he said, this is, this is really good. I said, thanks. And he said, would you like to come to talk to our local high-tech crime investigator association? And I said, Yes, because you know you always say yes. If you figure it out later, you always say yes when someone gives you an opportunity. So I went back and I uh, got on Yahoo at the time. You know, this is the late '90s, and uh, I'm searching around trying to figure out what I should be saying, what I shouldn't be saying, because I really, you know, had very little idea what I was doing at the time. Uh, and so I found all these great, you know, words to say, like you know, bitstream and uh, don't change things and imaging. And so I went and I talked to this group, and everyone kind of nodded their heads along, and I realized that no one else knew what they were doing either. And I realized this was a really good opportunity. <laughs> and so the other person that I met there, uh, who is now my business partner, uh, Ralph Gorgal, at the end of the meeting said, you're actually technical. And I said, yeah, he goes, we're the only two people here. <laughs> Everybody else are good people. He says they're investigators. He says, but they're not actually strictly technical. So we became friends then and we later became coworkers. And now uh, we uh, run a company together. At what point did you decide that, hey, you know, we, we're, we're going to kind of hang a shingle and decide to go out on your own and start a company <laughs> as opposed to, you know, work for somebody else? I, I never actually intended to do it. What happened is uh, – so Ralph and I worked for uh, a company called S3 Partners together. And we we're happy as clams, you know, doing investigations, doing forensics, living the dream. Uh, our boss, a guy named John Loveland, you know, he's now uh, – the global head of cyber for yeah uh, no for Verizon, um, you know he was out there getting us interesting work and you know we were we were happy we were I had a a, a website showing people how to write in scripts and I, I just thought things were great and then uh, a company called uh, FiOS bought us not the internet from Verizon mm -hmm. but a e-discovery company um, and so when we got purchased and this was in two thousand and three um, we were kind of wondering you know what what was going on and, and why it was happening. It seemed uh, a little strange to us that an e-discovery company wanted to buy a bunch of forensic geeks. Uh, and so as we found out through the deal that the people who worked there were also very confused why they purchased us and they didn't really know what they were going to do with us either. Uh, and the people in charge thought that we were just an amazing way to make images, which we are not very enthused about. 
but they let us keep doing forensics. So we kept doing forensics and we worked good cases and we still enjoyed ourselves. And Ralph and I flipped a quarter and he lost. So he became the manager. Uh, and <laughs> Uh, we we kept going uh, until 2005. Our boss, a guy named John Eldridge, who who works for us now, uh, he came around and he said, "They're they're letting me know that you make too much money doing e-discovery stuff for them, uh, and not enough doing forensics because you only charge by the hour for forensics, and we can charge for the weird conversions that you do by the meg for e-discovery. So we're going to stop forensics as a line of service." And I said, you know, that's really unfortunate timing because the first book just came out and I don't really see myself getting out of this field <laughs> and and stop doing forensics and doing e-discovery, which I really don't particularly care for. So Ralph and I talked and we're like, well, I guess we're going to have to go do something. And neither one of us really knew of a company that we wanted to rush to go to. And we said, well, maybe we should you know, try something on our own then. And so we, we made a deal. We said, okay, we'll save up enough money between the two of us to pay ourselves enough money to live on for three months. And if in that three month period, we can't get someone to pay us, we'll go get real jobs. And lo and behold, uh, we got lucky. Uh, we, people actually did pay up in those three months. Uh, and the other thing that happened that was really good for us is that our then boss went to you know his superiors and said, you know, we have some of these existing cases they were working on and they're leaving. Um, what should we do with them? And initially, the company was talking about actually subcontracting us into the work. Uh, but then I think somebody realized that there was an inherent liability to have someone who wasn't your employee uh, performing and, and, and testifying <laughs> on your behalf. And so they decided simply to hand over the book of business and and try to just have a partnership with us. And so we got really lucky. We had a, a head start that way. Gotcha. And, and when you kind of talk about, you know, the kind of casework and what draws you to forensic, what uh, forensics, but what what does make an interesting case to you? You know, it's the person, really. Um, that's, to me, the most interesting thing about forensics is that some human being has made a decision. And whether that's a good decision or a bad decision in the end is another story altogether. But it's how they choose to go about the actions they're taking uh, that to me is so interesting because you're going to have one person who is going to say, uh, hey, I'm going to steal some information and I'm just going to put it on this USB drive. Someone else is going to take it via Dropbox. Someone's going to email it. Some people are going to take pictures of it on their phone. That's you know one type of case. And then you have the other kind of person who says, boy, I'm, I'm really unhappy with my employer. I should start leaking information out to the press or I should start sending it to my buddy who works in another company. Or you're going to have the other ones where it's the angry you know ex-administrator who's uh, unhappy because he didn't get the raise he wanted and he quit, but he decides he's going to take revenge by you know coming in and, and disabling their factory uh you know whatever it is and, and no matter what actions you're investigating what's fascinating to me is that in the end there is a human being who's behind it all and it's understanding what their motivations were and why they were doing it and and how you can put the pieces together to show what they were doing and and show what's true and what's not true and what's a lie and all the rest it's it, it's it's that part to me the fact that you know you're not just dealing against a computer you know, it's a, a human uh, opponent in some ways. Uh, that to me is is just it just never it never gets old. It's like a giant game of chess. And one of the things that you do as part of that is certainly doing the expert witness work. Mm -hmm. um, and, and how's that process for you? You know, a lot of people ah. that are in in security that you know, or, or even been forensics that say you know, I don't want to be a testifying expert, but consultative is good. But uh, 
what's the real difference for you when it comes to being a testifying expert? So being a testifying expert is fun. And a lot of people don't agree with me on that. But I'll explain why I think it's fun. All you have to do is tell the truth. That is the secret. (laughs) So as long as you answer truthfully the questions and you don't bring up or put out things in your reports or your declarations or affidavits that you can't support and prove, you're bulletproof. I mean, there's forensics as a science, uh, especially, you know, digital forensics as a science, as compared to all the other disciplines that have to, you know, testify and and equate the, uh, their statements to facts. We have one of the easiest jobs because it's either there or it's not there on the system. And it's all, you know, kind of binary one and zero. So it's either there or it's not there or there's a fact that leads you to believe something or not. But we don't actually have to create these models or simulations or all this other craziness. Like if you are doing blood splatter you have to say you know it looks like these other kinds of blood splatters but it could be other things or if you're doing dna you know percent excuse me percentages of error or you know other environmental factors that could be involved or if you're a damages expert you have to create crazy calculations and reference you know 20 different people to explain why you believe these things are right i just have to say yes you know this artifact means this. And I know because I've tested it and that's how Windows works. Or yes, you know, Macs do this. Or yes, Linux does this. Uh, or yes, that file was there. Or yes, it was deleted. And I recovered it. That is so much easier <laughs> than all the other disciplines. Uh, and so that's one part of it. The other thing that I think people do is they get really intimidated uh, by the idea of what's being asked to them. And they're technical. So they're probably overly critical and not understanding uh, what's being asked of them. <coughs> and what, am I, what I mean by that is if someone says, are you an expert? Most technical people automatically flinch and say no, because they don't want to put themselves out farther than they think they can extend. And what they don't understand is that as in most things inside of the legal world, there are different definitions for things. So as a technical person, you can say, I don't consider myself an expert because I have not fully mastered uh, x86 assembly, and though I, I don't understand one particular instruction, so I am not an expert on X field. But under the law, uh, an expert is simply someone who knows more than the common person. So it's a really low standard. Uh, and Daubert, which other people also always make a reference to, is also not that high of a standard either. It just simply says that you have have education, knowledge, or training uh, in a particular field that's relevant to what you're testifying to. So again, not really that difficult to do, but what is fun for me, what I do think is entertaining, the reason I like it so much, is I really enjoy cross-examination. And the reason is, is you have to remember that the lawyer who is asking you questions is not technical. And so someone else has written down a series of questions with them to ask you. And the only thing that they're going to be able to do is one of two things. Either one, the opposing expert's going to give them some kind of information that directly contradicts what you have found. And if that's the case, you should accept it and say you need to go do testing to be able to validate it. Uh, don't just sit there and go, oops, sorry, you're right, um, because they could be trying to trick you. Or two, they're trying to walk you into a logic trap by trying to get you to contradict yourself. So for me, what's fun is I get to listen to the question, and then I think, 
why would you ask me this question? Where is this leading? And then what I like to do is I like to answer the question and then the question five questions down. And that way they look at their sheet. And they don't know where to go. And I keep doing this. Uh, so they keep getting confused and befuddled and eventually they get tired of me. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things I've noticed in testimonies, you know, sometimes attorneys will like to take black and white issues and make them gray and gray yes. issues, black and white. Um, and they do, they spend a lot of time trying to ask you things that uh, they don't necessarily fully understand. That's do their job. Yeah. And do you find uh, that the attorneys that do hire you do a better job prepping you knowing that going in to say, Hey, look, we don't even know what we're going to ask, but we're going to try to, we're going to try to rally you a little bit and prep. So, I mean, it's gotten to the point now I've done this enough. I mean, I, I first testified back in 02. Um, so it's been 14 years now of testimony the, the attorneys I work with the most, uh, they don't really try to prep me anymore. Instead, we just get down and we sit there and we say, okay, Dave, what are the questions that you would ask yourself that would cause you to pause? Or, you know, what, what, what are the worrying issues, you know, in this case, you know, what's, what are the problems that, you know, could be exposed? And so then we talk through those and I explain, you know, how I'd answer the question so that you can have an understanding of it. Um, but it, you know, as far as to the direct it goes in the questions they want to ask me. What we do is we we figure out what are the most important points based upon the analysis that we've done, the things that we need to make sure that we explain and get out there uh, and get it on the record. But it's it's interesting, you know. I I had this one lawyer who I've worked with a lot over the years, and uh, he was the local counsel on a case. And then we had this uh, other set of lawyers from California who were uh, working for the parent company, and I, I'm in Texas, and so they were there and they were in a break in this uh, hearing and, and they're trying to decide what to do. And, and the lawyer says, okay, we're going to put Dave back up and, and we're going to get him to talk about this. And, and then the lawyer from California says, what are we going to do to prep him? And the lawyer in Texas says, you don't do anything. You just ask a question and you stand back <laughs> because he's working with me enough where he has the confidence to know that if they don't have to sit there and try to draw out a hundred questions of yes and no's of short answers, uh, that, that you know that they can trust me enough to just ask me a question uh, and get me to to say what's important, so that you know, and then let the rest come out and cross. Gotcha. Now, in kind of going back along that idea of uh, you know being being a professional expert, one of the big things I've seen you do is, and you know, I think you could you can wear that 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 title with a certain amount of pride, but it's also through <laughs> through contributions that you do. We, yep. we spoke at the beginning of the, the interview about you know you regularly speak at conferences and, and blog, and you, you tend to I would say give back quite a bit to the community. Uh, why? Well, I mean, there's the good reason and then there's the uh, the necessary reason. So the good reason is I just really enjoy uh, what I do and I want other people to uh, be able to do uh, and understand anything new that I find because I want them to be able to do the best job they can do. And I like, you know, finding other people out there that have the enthusiasm for forensics and I do so that, you know, we can kind of work with each other and kind of feed off each other to kind of make new things and figure out new things because there's so much we don't know yet. And so I think, you know, that is probably the, the good reason why I, why I do it. The other reason uh, you know, that I do this and the reason I would encourage other people out there who are also uh, people who are testifying or going to have to legally defend their work uh, to actually share more than you maybe are is that one of the requirements for something to be considered admissible is that it has to be uh, generally accepted principles and it has to be something that was peer reviewed uh, and, and available to the public. So if you are keeping these forensic secrets to yourself – and you try to use that as evidence, uh, 
uh, uh, and try to use that in basis of your opinion, and the other side can't duplicate what you've done and it's not available to the general public, well, it's not evidence and it's not a admissible opinion, then you're going to get knocked out. And if you look at this in the extreme example, that's what happened to the FBI when they couldn't explain and wouldn't disclose uh, how they were you know, getting to people's systems when they were hacking the people over tour. Uh, and then the judge threw out uh, their evidence. And I think, you know, in that case, the judge made the right decision because that is, you know, kind of the the minimum basis for how experts work is that one expert has to be able to duplicate the work of another expert to be able to validate it, confirm it or deny it. Uh, and if they can't, then it's not really an opinion that you can stand behind. If no one else can test it, who's to say that you're right or wrong? Gotcha. And one of the things that you have developed and spent a good amount of time on is is the Triforce uh, tool mm -hmm. and really kind of what drew you into NTFS forensics and file system forensics as opposed to the myriad of other ah. artifacts and, and other areas on a drive or anywhere else? So probably the the one thing that happened is I've, I was interested in file systems. I was interested in, in Windows internals and I'd, I'd poked around and done a lot of different stuff and, and you know, wrote some little tools for different things. But Triforce came about because we had a giant piece of litigation between two huge companies. And in the end, there was this one Windows backup file that this one person made and he put it on an external drive and he later deleted it. But we couldn't say when it was deleted, but we did know that there was a reference to the file name inside of this log file. Uh, and so we t went to the lawyers and we said, we know it's in here. We know this has something to do with things, but we can't really answer it. No one else seems to know the answer. Do you want us to try to figure this out? And they said, we really don't care what it costs. Go figure it out. Because it, that, was, that was how much money was at stake. Um, uh, and in the end, which was even weirder, is that what happened is that this hard drive with this backup ended up going to a shady strip club where it was exchanged with members of the other company. Uh, and that's how the information got out, which led to the information of their company. It was purchased by another company, which was then acquired by the other holding company, which is how the litigation started, which is a whole weird thing. But in the end, what happened was is that you know we got to sit there and try to tear apart and understand reverse engineer the structure for a couple of months and then the litigation finally at the at the last minute the uh, the morning of trial settled and we had a half answered question uh, which is we knew that it was in there because of recent activity on the system uh, but we still couldn't kind of draw out the underlying data structure to be able to say what it meant other than the fact that we knew it was there uh, and so initially it was me and another gentleman by the name of George Hinkle uh, and George and I would kind of go through trying to figure out this thing. Uh, and it's probably one of the big learning experiences uh, that happened at the beginning of doing the Triforce research was understanding how important it was to have a good control environment when you're doing testing. Because when we first did our testing, we were doing it actually on the on the C drive of our computer, our, our system drive. And we didn't understand at that time just how many changes are constantly occurring to the disk. So we would perform an action and then we would go back and we jump into the log file. And when we did that, we would notice that it seemed to be kind of randomly, you know, in different lengths uh, apart from the other one. Uh, and so finally I said, okay, Clearly, we're doing something wrong. So that's when what I did is I would start formatting just external drives and put nothing else on them. And then I could only do one distinct action at a time against the external drive. And if I did it that way, there was nothing else writing to it. And then suddenly things started making more sense. Um, and it's really funny looking back at it now. 
some of well, you know the earliest presentations that I did in the work, uh, I think at CIC years and years ago, um, I actually had a little Perl script that would break apart the log file by what it now we know is the fix-up value. And I thought that might have been a record delineator. And I was showing how you could use that. And you could see uh, you know, befores and afters on renames for wipes. Uh, and now uh, what happened then after that is uh, Matthew Sayer uh, came on initially as an intern. Uh, and I had him working with it on me because George left. Uh, and Matt and I were working on it together. And Matt just got out of his uh, uh, associate's program. And he was finishing his bachelor's program. And he, as he started going through the structures, he said, wait a second. That's a file record. Wait, that's a standard information attribute because he just got going through that stuff in, in college. And so Matt was the one who figured out that what was actually inside of here and around the different records was actually the MFT. T record changes. It was a an overlay. Uh, and so we started figuring out more stuff from there. We started seeing, okay, this is the different types of MFT records we're seeing. We're starting to divide this out even further. And we got the fix-ups right. And then what we had to do is figure out what all the other headers uh, and the flags in the headers meant. Uh, and then we got really lucky at that point because another person out there uh, by the name of Blue Angel in Korea, I, I don't know his real name. Uh, I like to meet the guy one day. Uh, he was also apparently looking into the log file stuff, uh, and he actually put up uh, the the base header of a record, um, which we don't know where he got it from. It could have come from the leaked NTFS source code at the time. Uh, we didn't ask any questions. Um, and from there, we're actually able to finish it out and map the rest. And that's how the initial kind of Triforce parser got built. And so we kind of first focused on the log file because that was our our big question. No one really seemed to understand it. Um, and so, in fact, we kept looking at other places, uh, and that's when we found out uh, that if you look at the Linux NTFS 3G project, uh, it had a reference to the log file. We're like, oh, great, this is open source. Let's go take a look at it. And what it said is, we understand the beginning of the file for the restart header, and nothing else makes sense. If you figure it out, let us know. So that was a dead end. Uh, the only thing that we found in the end uh, that, of course, supported it in a limited way was X-Ways, because X-Ways, of course, is everything. Uh, and X-Ways is pulling out uh, deletions uh, from the log file. They, they figured out the, the opcode pattern for deletions. So they would map that out. So that became our, our one tool we could use to validate what we were doing. Um, so once we had that, we figured out the rest of the opcodes. We wrote the initial version of Triforce, uh, which meant we needed to write a really good MFT parser. So we got that in there. And so at first, that was all it was. It was log files, MFTs. And we thought that was pretty great. Uh, until uh, we started getting a little frustrated because we realized how quickly uh, log files and system drives got overwritten. It was great for external drives. It was great for secondary drives. But on the system drives, you know, you're lucky if you get, you know, 24 hours and usually it was more like 12. And we wanted to get more data. Uh, and that's when I was starting to read Corey Harrell's stuff and talking to him. And he, you know, pointed out the USN uh, journal again. And we realized that the USN journal actually uh, had a tie-in to the MFT, and we could use that to fill in some of the blank for some of the log files where we didn't have a file record name. And the reason for that is that the log file only records the differences of what's being changed in the MFT. It doesn't record the whole MFT record each time. So if the difference would include the file name attribute, um, then you wouldn't get the name of the file you're working with. Um, so we started linking in the USN journal initially just so we could get additional file names be able to map more names and changes. But that's when we realized that the USN, if we rolled it back the same way we were doing the log file, uh, that we could start taking what we were doing and even you know bring it out even further. And we thought that was really cool. 
uh, until we met with Troy Larson one year at the Sands DFR Summit, uh, or the DFR Summit, as some people like to say. Um, he came over and he said, you know, I, I was told you have a tool I need to see. And Matt and I at this point were very kind of concerned <laughs> that we were about to show our file system work to the you know forensics guy from Microsoft. Uh, and we said, okay, let's let's go do this. And and, and two interesting things happened after we showed that to Troy. Uh, one, Troy said, this is good. Right now I do this by hand, which Matt and I like, holy crap, we couldn't do this by hand. And two, he said, what about uh, deleted US internals? And we both kind of looked at each other like, what are you talking about? He says, well, it's a Sparks file. And I'm like, yeah. He goes, yeah, it's a Sparks file. I'm like, I still don't get it, Troy. He's like, it's a Sparks file. And then it kind of clicked because what he was trying to tell us, and this is something Troy is known for. He kind of, he can't tell you everything because then he'd be in trouble. He just gives you little clues. He's like Yoda. You know, he comes along and reveals some part of the mystery, but then you have to figure it out for yourself. Um, is that Sparks files grow so that the, offset into the file is always equal to the record number and that's why they do them this way but you don't want to take all the space on the disk that doing a file like that would take so instead windows will populate all of this virtual blank space at the beginning of the file allowing the file to keep growing virtually but not actually on storage on disk and what troy was pointing out to us is that as the usn journal grows it doesn't actually override itself Instead, all the old sectors that get replaced with sparse sectors actually just get left on the disk and allocated space like any other, other kind of deleted file. So because of that, you can actually carve the free space of your disk for USM records. And when we did that the first time, we started finding hundreds of thousands to billions of USN records that were hanging out in the free space of the disk. Uh, and we started bringing those in, and then we figured out how to put those back into sequence. And it just, it just keeps getting more interesting. And so now... We're in the middle of a big rewrite uh, for Triforce. We're trying to use all of the, the Mets libraries and our libraries and some other stuff to try to make it faster and, and better and dedupe and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, but it's led us down this path. Where we realized that the other thing we need to do is start uh, using these types of correlations and automations across everything else that we do. And there really is no reason not to do it. So uh, if you've you know, seen us talk in the last two years, we're talking less about journal forensics, even though, you know, of course, we, we talk about that, too. But we're also talking about uh, automation and, and correlation these days and how to kind of replace uh, at least the boring parts of your jobs with scripts. Yeah, we, we can definitely use uh, always use more automation if we can uh, can find it. But the, the one thing that I'm really kind of taken away from that story is the amount of uh, collaborative effort. Yes. That it wasn't just you and a hex editor and a USN journal figuring it out by yourself. This was a this is a team effort with people from all over the place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everybody builds on each other's work. You know, maybe at the very beginning, you know, of of things back when you know it was like you know Andy Rosen and a couple other guys uh, and the Men's Brothers and uh, trying to think who else back then was doing a lot. Uh, those are ones that I probably know the best. Um, you know, they you know probably truly had a lot of initial groundwork where there was no one, no other work to rely upon where they had to go figure stuff out. But we're lucky these days. We have this huge framework of data that already exists. And, you know, they always call it standing on the shoulder of giants. You know, you're, you're lucky that you get to actually rely upon someone else's work and the work they've already done. And then you get to, you know, take advantage of that to stand up and look up and say, okay, what's next. Uh, and so there's no reason why anyone should feel bad about the idea that their work is based upon someone else's. That's the, the foundation of, of peer review and, and good science. I guess. So what, what would you say to somebody who does, 
you know, maybe come to that point where they're thinking, yeah, I would, I would like to, but I can never do something like develop a tool or, or do research in this area. What, what advice would you give them? I would say you're wrong. <laughs> you're absolutely wrong because you don't realize just how much help our industry needs, our community needs, and just understanding the basic things. Um, I mean, the best thing you can do, like, for instance, when we, I have a new intern come into our company, uh, the first thing that I do is I start them on research and validation. And I tell them, I say, okay, we're going to pick a project for you. And what you're going to do is you're going to test something and validate something and understand how it works. And we're going to use that to see, you know, how you, how you work and how you think and how you approach a process. But the reason we do that is because people don't realize just how many things we take for granted, how many things we rely upon, that all of a sudden you test it and something's different or changed. And it can be a, a dramatic difference on you know what it means to our case so you know a, a very recent example of this windows 10 um windows 10 um if you create a file on your desk on your desktop or anywhere in the gui uh inside of the gui by like right click and saying you know create new file it actually creates a link file now when you create a file rather than waiting for you to access a file now that's a, a very basic simple finding and that was something that someone wouldn't have to, you know, understand how to do hex. They wouldn't have to know how to program. They wouldn't have to have, you know, a PhD in something to understand. It's just testing a assumption based upon uh, a new version of Windows to test. And there's so many examples like that where there's so many basic parts of what we do and what we rely on as a forensic examiner. And there's so many different moving parts in our underlying operating systems and applications where if you wanted to start, just pick one thing that you do, one thing that you rely on, and test it. Test it, validate it, and write up your 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 test, your assumptions, and your findings, and put it out there. And you'd be surprised the number of people that appreciate the work that you do, because you're taking the time to actually put out uh, your work so that you can save them the time from doing it. And sometimes you may actually either a confirm that what you know is to be true, or b find something that actually is different or wrong. Uh, and help everybody else fix it. And then everybody else gets to be right. And in this line of business, you know, not being wrong is a really good thing. That's for sure. And when you kind of look back at your career and kind of where you got to where you are now, who've been some of the uh, mentors that you've had in the field? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I would say, you know, early on, uh, definitely Andy Rosen was definitely uh, a mentor to me. Uh, I met Andy opposing him on a case. I already, of course, knew who he was, uh, used his tools, used his stuff. Uh, but uh, meeting Andy let me understand uh, a lot of things just about how some of the, you know, some of the initial tools got developed about, you know, what's important when you're working on a case, what's important when it comes to, to doing these tools and research. Uh, there's no question that, you know, Joaquin uh, Metz, Joaquin Metz, uh, him, his libraries, his uh, specifications, documentations, those have been a huge help and influence on me and, and what I've done uh, because I've been able to rely on his stuff uh, and use his work to kind of push my work forward. Um, hmm. Beyond that. Or maybe maybe another way to look at it now, some of the mentors, but maybe some of the other heroes that you have, there's people that you really kind of look up to uh, within the industry. Uh, let's see. So definitely, I'd say Mets and Andy are probably the the two that, you know, to me have made the kind of the, the largest volume of, of work. Uh, there's no questions, uh, you know, 
I like Zimmerman a lot. You know, he and I get along and, and we, we do stuff together, collaborate a lot. I think he's pretty great. Um, and at this point now, I'm going to start naming names and, and forgetting people. People are going to be upset. We, um, yeah, we, <laughs> we understand it's not all inclusive. No, no, no. But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, now I'm going to have thank to thank the academy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, shoot. I mean, there's there's so many different people whose blogs I read uh, and stuff that I've I've taken stuff away from. So there's Corey and there's Harlan and, and there's Mary de Grazia and uh, there's there's just a there's a lot. I mean, that's the thing I think that people don't realize is you know no one is no one stands on their own, and there's just so much out there that if you take the time. Uh, to just see all the information that we've all you know collectively put out there, you know everyone out there you know in some way you know should be considered your hero in this space because we have so much that everyone's sharing and helping each other out with. I, I would say primarily that forensics, you know, maybe not so much on the IR side to be you know to be open and honest. I think those guys are a little more secretive and uh, try to hide things to themselves because you know they think it's a competitive advantage. But especially though on the digital forensic side, I think we uh, in general like to help each other. Uh and I think we're probably one of their more open and friendly communities when it comes to someone in asking a question. Uh there there may be a couple of mailing lists or or forums where that appears not to be true, but you know don't let one or two bad apples uh spoil your experience, but if you come to a group of forensic investigators and you ask a question, they usually they're genuinely, you know, excited to hear that you're interested and, and generally they will be happy to answer your questions and, and happy to share the, what they found and, and hear what you found so they can compare the differences. Um, so I, I think, you know, as a community, you know, we may be a silent community, you know, as far as the online community goes, we don't talk that much or sometimes we don't get that much feedback you know and that, that's i guess to be expected sometimes because like for instance everything that i say like for instance this podcast interview uh, i may have this quoted against me one day when i'm sitting on the stand but at the same time you know when you get to a, a conference or a meeting or a or a group or an hsa meeting whatever it is and you get somewhere where someone's not on the record people are very open and forthcoming and 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 honest and and generally you know nice and, and interested in in forensics and I, especially comparing that to the InfoSec community, which is, you know, in some ways much more ego-driven and uh, much more about, you know, what one person's better than another person at doing something. Or uh, I find that our community is, is, in general, a much more accepting, happy, uh, kind of motivating kind of place. It's a good place for someone who's looking for something interesting, looking for something new, who wants to transition in. I think we're much more welcoming in that aspect. Gotcha. And, and kind of looking back at your career too, what's the uh, best career advice or lesson you've ever received and kind of when was it and who gave that to you? 1996, uh, Joe Silvestro, who was my, it was Gloria Silvestro's husband. He worked for customs. And what he told me, he said, find a job that someone else can't automate. So, uh, at the time, I was doing pen testing, and I was like, well, no, wait, they can't automate this. And he goes, oh, you'd be surprised. He says, you know, you're, all you're doing right now is you're performing an action that's producing a report. You know, and sure enough, you know, nowadays with some of the vulnerability scanners out there now, you're seeing that whole market, you know, kind of spin down into people just handing out reports that someone else wrote. You know, the value of the individual tester is much lower than it used to be. And so as I started looking around and I got into forensics, I realized that, you know, this 
this was a field where a human being in the end would have to testify, have to validate and support their facts and, and, and be prepared to uh, defend their work. And I said, you know, this is, this is a, a job that measures up to the Silvestro standard. Gotcha. <clears throat> and I'm sure things haven't been always peachy and perfect along your, your career. <laughs> Have there been um, any, any failures or things that you might look at as a failure at the time that if you look back now, kind of set you up for future success? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, every time that, you know, you are working on any type of research and in the end, it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, for instance, uh, looking at transactional registries, transactional NTFS, uh, looking at some of the extended attributes and OS 10, uh, looking at uh, how quickly some of the other artifacts would go away or how some of the things just get eliminated by the operating system vendor at an update. Uh, or sometimes you think you found this, something amazing and then it turns out that you accidentally put it there yourself. <laughs> I mean, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, that is, is absolutely true. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think. Probably initially at the beginning of the career is probably where I had a lot of the, the most early failures uh, and, and probably where I, I learned a lot of lessons, uh, especially back in the, the late 90s. Um, I, I think I got the best lesson from, you know, what matters to a business versus what matters technically, uh, back then when I was working, doing pen testing, actually, um, I went out to a toxic waste disposal facility with two salespeople and they were there to try to convince them to buy firewalls and security software. And I was the technical person, uh, who was there to sell, uh, forensics and, uh, information security services. And so I'm sitting there and I'm looking over his network and I'm explaining, you know, these are some of the issues you could have. And uh, he looks at me and he says, son, you know what's going to happen if I can't get email? I said, no, sir. He goes, they're going to mail me. You know, he says, they're going to fax me. I said, okay. He says, you know what happens my phone lines go down? What? They're going to mail me. I said, okay. He goes, you know what happens if they can't mail me? What? He says, they'll find a way to get it to me because they got toxic waste and I got a facility to destroy it. And I realized at that moment that he was absolutely right. That in my mind, the technical appearances and the limitations and the vulnerabilities that could affect any one, you know, one little node on their system was a huge deal to me. But it meant nothing to him because he had a disconnected network in a factory that was destroying and incinerating toxic waste in the middle of Oklahoma. And as long as that factory was running, his business was successful. That was the criteria for him of what was important. And I've used that kind of as a measuring stick going forward of trying to understand what's technically important and what's important to the business. And I can use that when I talk to lawyers to try to figure out what's interesting to me as an examiner and what's important to their case. You have to kind of remove yourself um, from the technical nature of our work sometimes, which is hard to do, uh, and start thinking about this as the person you're doing the work for and understanding what's important to them. Because if you can do that, then you can explain things in terms that actually matter and affect them, and they can understand what you're saying, uh, and they can, they can better take away the value of your work. Because that is probably the one thing that people miss the most as they enter this field is that the value of what we do to the person who is asking for it isn't in the hours that we spend, you know, tearing apart a file or understanding how we got on there 
or uh, you know recovering deleted data or uh, decrypting something or reverse engineering a piece of malware. What matters in the end is the report that we generate that explains things in plain English of what we found and how and what it means to them. And that's in the end what they hold in their hand or they read in you know as an attachment to their email. Uh, that's the value that they place on you know possibly you know a month to a year's worth of work that you've spent. Got it. And, and when you do look at communicating findings or maybe findings, but just, you know, that kind of value to the client, what, what are some of the suggestions you would give people about how to communicate the somewhat very technical issues sure. um, into ways they can understand? So the big thing is you have to find, and this is true also for testimony, you have to find ways to describe concepts that are technically accurate but understandable to your audience. And so uh, a good example of this, um, back when, you know, tapes used to be a thing and, you know, before, you know, they were completely eliminated and especially with, you know, some of the older judges, now I can still say this, um, I would describe how it is we, we can recover uh, a partially deleted file. And I would say, if you had a tape and it had the Beatles on it and you overwrote half the tape with Britney Spears, then half the tape's still the Beatles. They're like, oh, you're, I get that. I've done that before. I've I've hit play and it kept going and I heard another song. I said, yes, that's the deleted data. They're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, we had another case where uh, we were saying that someone was swapping out uh, uh, different IP addresses in the logs and the cookies didn't line up. So we had to make an exhibit for the jury to explain the concept of different IP addresses being associated with the wrong cookie. And so what we did is we had these series of animations of someone uh, who's, you know, talking to a web server and then the wrong driver's license gets sent to them. They're very sad because they don't have their driver's license anymore. Um, It's those kind of things. If you can boil it down to a a scenario that is um, understandable to that person and and is culturally appropriate to that person uh, so that they can, it means something to them uh, while still remaining technically accurate, then, you know, you're going to be able to tell a better story and they're going to understand what you're saying much better. And when you kind of look at that, I mean, it's, it, it sounds like communication seems to be a big skill that, that so much yes. have. What, what are some other skills that people, whether it be in cybersecurity or particularly forensics, should try to uh, maybe strive to possess? Um, learning how to write. I mean, that's a big thing. Uh, if you are a, you know, the world's best programmer, uh, that's fantastic. You can write software, but um, if you need to be able to communicate a, a concept to someone, uh, I would say, you know, practicing your your writing skills and your ability to, you know, write meaningfully, but yet quickly is probably just as valuable as your ability to, you know, write a piece of software. Um, in the same way, um, professionalism goes a long way. Uh, I don't mean that so much in appearance. Uh, you know, I, I only wear a suit if I'm going to court. Uh, but what I mean more is just your your general attitude uh, towards things, uh, the way you speak, uh, how you talk to other people, um, all those things go a long way when you're showing, you know, someone else, you know, especially a client, uh, you're showing them and, and their case kind of, you know, their, their respect and sincerity it deserves. Uh, you don't want to kind of try to gloss over or, or make light of the things that bother them because you think it's a, a trivial issue. Um, all that serves to do is make your client unhappy. So some humility. 
humility is a good thing for for life in general, not just for forensics. <laughs> Especially, yes, yeah. I, I can say that as a father too. You get humbled yes. constantly. Yes, um, it, but you know when you know speaking of young people, but you know when when you talk to um, you know or, or look at people that are now kind of entering the field. Um, you might get asked a lot, you know, what, what's the common advice that you find yourself giving out to people ah. most often about as they're trying to get into the field? Yes. Um, you know, really the big thing that I like to tell them is to have, have passion, you know, only get into this if you're doing this because you find it fascinating and interesting. Don't do it because you think forensics is going to make you money. Because if you do, Sure, you may find a job that pays a good amount for doing the work, but you're never going to be as good as your coworker who thinks about this when he sleeps. Because in the end, that's what should drive you towards it. Uh, the other thing is don't be intimidated by the huge volume of information that is out there and feel you have to be an expert in every aspect of forensics. Uh, because as we've grown as an industry, there's so many subparts and pieces now that are splintering off. But all of them root down to the same basic data sources. I mean, if you look, you know, across all the spectrum of forensics, you know, as we know it today, especially digital forensics, there's mobile forensics, there's network forensics, there's malware analysis, there's host forensics, there's uh, shoot, threat intelligence, um, all these different kind of fields. Uh, everything that involves analysis of data is all coming from these same sources. Uh, so that's disk, memory, uh, or the operating system that's generating these things. So stop worrying about the, the huge big picture and start focusing on the small bits that you think are interesting to you and are important that, you know, you want to, you know, just check out, test, validate, uh, whatever it is, and start, you know, start putting up your work out there. Even if, you know, you're not particularly sure about it, put it out for other people to comment on uh, and then, you know, write a blog or put up a page or put out a paper or uh, put up a project on GitHub, whatever it is, start engaging with the people out there because the best way to get a job in this field is for other people to see that you have a strong passion for the work and that you have a genuine interest because everything else can be taught, but you can't teach someone um, excitement and passion for a field. Yeah. And along those, those same kind of uh, the thought line, I mean, you, you, you did write a book, uh, computer forensics infosec pro guide and i believe you know part of the part of that was uh trying to give some folks experience from where you've come up in the field to kind of maybe help them make those changes so if somebody you know is kind of maybe feeling they're stuck in a rut whether it be in cybersecurity or another field uh what advice would you give them to try to make maybe a career change uh i mean if you think this is something interesting to you you should Seriously consider it because forensics is probably one of the faster growing uh, fields. There's a huge demand for people that are, are doing this. And you know, the majority of the work out there is satisfying. It's not just, you know, doing, you know, one-off reports for someone uh, and, and having, you know, no real interesting work. There's so many interesting problems out there that you get to get faced with and, and things you get to solve. So I would say, you know, in general, I would say this is a great time to enter the field. Uh, and then two, don't just try to say, and I'm a forensic person today. Because if you do that and you try to put up this fake front uh, that you're a forensic person, it's going to be quickly seen through. Um, instead, just start going out there and start looking around to say, who in my general area 
is doing forensics right now and just reach out to them and say, hey, I, I live in the same city or, hey, I'm going to be at the same conference or, hey, uh, I attended the same school. Or even if you're at your school, go find a professor and say, this is something I'm I'm interested in. Where could I go? And so there's tons of forensic challenges out there. There's tons of blogs and videos. You can, you know, listen to podcasts like these. Or you can start getting more knowledge and experience uh, of, you know, how these things go and, and understanding what you're interested in. Uh, and you can start finding, you know, where you want to put your focus. Uh, for some people, that's embedded devices that people get interested in. Some people, it's cloud forensics. Some people, it's going to be host forensics, mobile forensics. You have to start trying all these different things to see which one of those kind of, kind of catches you. Uh, and then don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to either say what you don't know or to ask for help. Uh, and you'll find out that, you know, the community of people on there, the easiest way probably is just to go on the Twitters. Go on Twitter you know, use the hashtag DFIR and ask a question. And you'd be surprised the number of genuine, helpful responses that you will receive, the number of us out there who would very be very happy to help you and, you know, help you segue. I've I've had students who have actually emailed me saying, hey, I see you're going to be at a, a conference or I see you're gonna be teaching for SANS. Uh, can I meet you one night? I want to ask you some questions. And I love that because that is someone taking the initiative to go out there and say, I, it, it seems to me that you know what you're doing. Maybe, uh, maybe you can help me to see if I can, you know, not screw up as I try this. And so, um, I find that to be great. I find uh, that to be a, a great kind of uh, way to be able to show your enthusiasm, uh, but also your dedication to take that kind of initiative, that next step. Um, a lot of the interns that we've gotten is because someone actually reached out to us and said, "Hey, can I can I be an intern?" And I'm like. Look at you, you, you asked, yes, <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, please come out and talk to us. We wanna see who you are and, and what you're doing. Uh, but you know, get engaged, don't be afraid and just start on your own uh, learning you know, how stuff works and doing the challenges. And then you know, if you're already working professionally, you know, don't drop everything in your life you know, unless you can afford to, to try to you know, suddenly do this. You can start at work trying to pick up this kind of uh, additional duties. But if you're in school, you know, look for a, a college or a program that is known uh, for doing you know, good forensics so that you can start getting put into contact with their alumni and you can start meeting the professors and meeting the other students who are going to be that you know, next generation of forensic exa examiners. Because you know, as sad as it is, eventually you know, some of us are going to have to stop doing this as we get too old to do it, which you know sounds funny, but you know I would like to retire someday. Someday, if they let us, yeah, Not tomorrow, but someday. And and, and with that, uh, you know, you certainly do a good amount of teaching. You mentioned, um, and, and how's that experience been for you? Actually, being the giver of information than necessarily the receiver. You know, the best thing about teaching, and uh, I was lucky before Sands, I've gotten to teach other stuff, is that you'll never truly master material. You'll never truly understand all the nuances of what you do until you have to teach it to someone else. So that's the first part, is that it forces you to look at all those things that you didn't really want to get around to understanding, so you can tell it to somebody else. But the other thing that's fascinating is getting to hear the questions from your students because they will think of things that you have never questioned before. And a good example of this is about a year and a half ago, I had a student in Minneapolis and she said, um, why does this show up as a fixed disk or a removal disk? What, what determines that when I plug it into the computer? And I said, you know, I don't know. You know, I have some assumptions, I have some theories, but I've never actually tested it. And so 
uh, in the breaks in that class, I actually started doing some research and some Googling. And what I ended up finding out is that there is actually a bit in the firmware on your external devices that actually sets whether something is removable or uh, fixed to Windows and that you can actually switch that bit by downloading a utility that changes that bit in the firmware. And so it's something I never considered. It's something that actually meant a lot to me because then that changes how Windows actually respects and treats the device as far as what artifacts and, and data it populates and collects. Uh, and so I never would have considered that before unless she would have asked that because I, it's just something that was kind of generally in the back of my knowledge, but I hadn't even thought about it in years. And I found that more and more it's students asking questions that they don't seem to understand the importance of, but they're generally trying to understand what's happening that forces you to reconsider and maybe reevaluate a prior assumption that could lead to a, a whole new finding. Yeah. And, and kind of on the flip side of training is certifications and the certifications can have kind of a mixed, mixed emotions within yeah. the uh, security yeah. community. What's, what's your thought? I mean, you actually have several certifications and train I've people. Couple. Yeah. yeah. So what's your thoughts on, you know, InfoSec certifications? Okay. So there's a difference between, in my opinion, InfoSec certifications and forensic certifications. So what I mean by that is that a lot of people out there are looking at InfoSec certifications like the CISSP or the CISM or these other things. And they, and they judge them harshly because they say that the people who have them are not these technical masters. Uh, and what they're failing to understand is that those certifications are meant for the management of programs, not meant for the in the weeds analysis and the work. You know, something like the OSCP is probably a, a better example of a technical certification. On the forensic side, though, a certification is actually good for one of two reasons. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's great to show that you've met a series of criteria to show your proficiency in a subject. But more importantly, the reason that a forensic certification can be so vital for your work is that, one, if you're trying to get qualified to testify, having a certification shows that you've met some kind of standard from a third party who is attesting to your proficiency, uh, which can go towards helping you meet the bear. Uh, but also on the other part, what I'm seeing more and more from the defense attorney side uh, or you know, the opposing attorney side, depending upon if it's civil or criminal, is that what you're going to see is attorneys asking if you're certified in the tool that you're using. Because if you're not certified in the tool that you're using, how can you be sure of your results? Gotcha. So I think that is becoming a more, more of a valid reason if you're going to have to defend your work of why you should probably get to, uh, certified in the tools that you're using. Okay, makes sense. Um, you know, and, and kind of looking along the same lines of training and certification, you know, there's the constant reports we hear that there's not enough skilled security people or forensic people in the workforce, uh, that there's a constant demand. Um, but you know, I've, I've heard different different uh, results, even from talking to people on this pod you know, for this podcast, of how that what's the reality of that versus um, other ways to kind of solve the problem. What, what's some of your thoughts about this need, this demand? Is it really there um, and is it solvable? So the demand is no question there. I mean, there's I, I know so many people who are like, oh, we're hiring, we're hiring, we're hiring. I know more companies out there that are trying to hire people to try to fill these roles. But more importantly, they're trying to hire people who already have the skills and knowledge who can fill the role. And so for me, what I've been doing lately is I, it used to be, you know, when I first started the company back in 05, uh, you know, we would look to people that we knew or people who seemed like they had a good general IT background and say, could we 
make them forensics people and we would kind of take the time to invest in them and train train them but lately what we've been doing instead is we've been kind of looking at which academic institutions out there have good practical programs in forensics and we're actually recruiting interns out of those programs and uh, bringing them in and then you know accumulating them to have what we do and how we do things uh, and then giving them the rest of the training that they need to kind of do the work our way and i, yeah. I think i think those institutions that are really have good academic forensic programs, I think that is solving uh, part of the problem. Yeah, I've seen that and I, kind of taking the same approach with, with some of the junior staff that I have now that have either come out of um, cybersecurity or forensic programs. Do you see that there there is more of these programs now, one, and that the quality of the people that they're putting out is better? So I see more of these programs and I would say is that not every program is equal. Um, you know, when I look at where I'm going to be recruiting from, uh, I would probably say, you know, that there's certain programs and certain professors that I probably look at more than others, uh, because those are going to be the ones uh, whose curriculums I know and whose, you know, what they're teaching I agree with as far as you know the, the skills and what's practical versus what's academic. Um, so yes, there are certain programs that I probably look towards more than others. Not not all degree programs are equal at the moment. Okay. And as a hiring manager, as you're bringing these people in, what, what are some of the maybe skills and, and talents and characteristics ah, that you look for? So that's a good question. So it depends how they're coming in. Is they're coming in as an intern, I don't expect them to have a huge amount of forensic knowledge as far as, you know, being able to answer, you know, 20 questions with me about what things mean. So instead, uh, the the last thing that we did that got our current intern, Davida, is we said, okay, what we want you to do is we're going to pick an artifact and we're going to give you time away from us for about a week. We want you to write up a small bit of research to show us you know, your ability to research something you know, for the first time and, and try to understand it and try to describe it to us. And so she actually ended up writing a 25-page paper on the MFT. So obviously we, we said yes. <laughs> But uh, with other interns, you know, it's just getting an, an appreciation for their thought process, getting to see that they can think critically, that they can approach a problem, they can define uh, a, a testing plan and, and, you know, without even understanding the, the fundamentals, which we'll teach them, but helping the, us to see their mental you know, capacity uh, and, and interest and excitement for this kind of work. If someone's coming in and wanting a job, not as an intern, but as an examiner, I actually have a whole different way that I approach them. Uh, instead of saying, you know, can you do research? Um, I, instead, what I do is I say, what can you tell me about this artifact? And the number of responses that they can give to me as far as what that artifact means is the level of seniority in my mind that they should have. Uh, for other words, if, stuff, if I say, what can you tell me about a link file? And they say, it means they opened a file. Okay, that's a junior person. But if they can tell me more about uh, what, how the actions occur, uh, what situations link files do or do not get generated, if they can explain to me, you know, the different dates inside the link file and the references, and maybe even some of the new findings as far as, you know, the internal structures of Windows 7 for shell item arrays and all the rest of the stuff within it, uh, you know, there's so much now that we know that I can determine how long and how in-depth someone is interested in this field by how they can answer a simple question like that. Uh, and then I can then expand it. Okay, what can you tell me about a jump list? What can you tell me about what happens when you, you know, plug in an external device? Uh, what, you know, what subsystem, you know, should be enabled or, or anything like that? Because what I'm trying to do is not ask them, you know, 
stumper questions. I'm just trying to get a gauge and understanding of, you know, how what what is your real level of comfort and proficiency with the underlying data? Uh, because from there, you know, I can help you, you know, understand how we do things here. Okay. In in you know, kind of in your your times and travels in the industry, you know, particularly in forensics, sometimes we hear some bad advice repeated over and over again, <laughs> and it takes uh, takes on the word of God. What what's some of the bad advice that you've heard given out, maybe both uh, technically and, and career wise, that people kind of regurgitate that you think, you know, kind of has the emperors have no clothes moments for you. Let's see. Um, e-discovery is where the money is. <laughs> um, I mean, while that may be true, there's a lot of money in e-discovery. Don't don't think that you can't make good money in forensics. Uh, you know, you can do a, a good, a, have a good life, and and never be subject to a, a last minute production request. Um, let's see. Uh, another bit. No one will take you seriously until you're thirty. Uh, that was a, a good one. I'm, I'm much older than 30 now, but I remember at the time that kind of pissed me off. Uh, <laughs> um, you're oh, well, trust me, I'm, I'm in my 40s and nobody takes me <laughs> seriously still, including my family. So it's good. Uh, let's see. Probably one of the most prominent pieces I remember is a, a client who told me to remember that I was just a consultant when I was trying to explain to uh, one of his employees why something that they were doing was a bad idea. Um Let's see other pieces of bad advice. Uh, you don't want to be a testifying expert. It's it's scary and and uh, you don't want to do that. Uh, let's see. Oh, I mean, back when we first started getting started, you know, we used to think CRC values were as good as hashes. That oh, was never they'll never collide. <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Oh, uh, you need to take a picture of everything. That, yeah, that's up there with the freezing of the hard drives. Too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so may, maybe – okay, what, what do you think is some good advice that's maybe not given out as much <laughs> that, uh, you, you wish, that you, you, you wish people would say more of? Don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, if you are working uh, with someone, whether it's HR or uh, legal, whatever it is, um, ask them questions like, you know, what's important to you or why are we doing this? Uh, what, what would what would trouble you uh, if I found it? Or, you know, does this relate to something else that you're doing? Because um, if you work in a vacuum, you know, you can't help put things in the context. Uh, other things probably it's, it's good is don't be don't be afraid. Uh, don't remember that judges don't have write blockers or uh, hashers, and uh, the lawyers don't either. The only person out there who's going to uh, test your images is going to be the opposing expert. No one else is going to know what you're talking about or know <laughs> what you're saying. Um, beyond that, you know, enjoy enjoy your work. You know, enjoy the the opportunity that someone may give you to to, to solve a case or figure out a problem because you know you don't realize you know, until you do it, how lucky and fulfilling it is that, you know, if you keep doing it and you show proficiency and more people keep asking you to do it, uh, how much fun your life can be when you just get to be the person who gets to solve mysteries all day. And, and certainly as a business owner, I, I can't imagine you, you only read technical stuff. Um, but what are some maybe the, the, the books or other things that you've consumed from a business owner that's had a you know, positive influence on you that you would recommend? Uh, let's see. 
Joel Schmolsky has a good one uh, called Joel and Software. He actually compiled all of his blogs into a book, and some of it is about uh, running the business side as well as the software side. I like that a lot. Um, as far as being a, a dad, uh, there's a, a book out there called uh, Home Team by the same guy who wrote Liar's Poker in the Big Short, Michael Lewis. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a good one. Um, and then otherwise, uh, I had a friend of mine who got his MBA, uh, Chris Davis. He actually wrote the, the first book with me. And he said, just go read MBA in a box rather than getting your MBA. He said, I went through my MBA program. That taught me everything I needed to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then probably Lazier's Guide to Taxes. <laughs> that, that was a good one. <laughs> helped me understand what I should and shouldn't do and, and helped me put back in the context all of the benefits that my previous employers gave me, understanding that none of them were out of the goodness of their heart. They're all actually uh, advantageous tax-wise to the company. <laughs> gotcha. Um, okay. That's great. And yeah, I have some kind of, you know, we call them like kind of rapid fire questions. They don't have to be rapid fire answers, but just, you know, <laughs> kind of, the kind of potpourri of questions. Right. Right. Okay. So if you had to, uh, if you could time travel and you can go back and give advice to your 25 year old self, Ooh. what advice would you give, would you give young David? Um, you know, that's a good question. 25. It's one year before I got married. I would probably tell him go to the gym more <laughs> and uh, probably to double down on some of the data structures so I didn't have to wait so long to get them right. Don't second guess yourself on this. <laughs> well, it's early on and I, I don't know how other people, you know, went through things. I, I didn't start off being a programmer. I didn't start off thinking that programming was fun. I was actually quite resistant to it. And I would take it in college and never understand really the point. I would write these stupid things that, you know, dealt a hand of poker or, or determine the proper inefficient routing scheme for trucks and between a simulated network or something. But it never really made sense to me. Um, in the end, what got me to program is in 2000, when I was working on a project with Aaron Phillip uh, back at a company we used to work at called NSTAR, and he got too busy and had to switch projects, and I was stuck having to try to write a program uh, that would validate the current installed base of a Linux system against the online ISO repos. Uh, And so that kind of forced me to have to solve the problems and, and then look up the functions that I needed to call and, and understanding how to write it uh, without anyone else there to do it for me. And uh, after that, it kind of, the bug bit me and I started writing more code and solving more problems with code rather than saying, well, I'm not a coder or I'm not a programmer. Uh, and, and I understand now that in the end, when I what I thought was a coder or a programmer was someone who knew how to do all this stuff instinctively. And I was wrong. Uh, a coder or a programmer is someone who has actually taken the time and forced themselves to try to solve a problem or an issue by simply Googling until they found uh, the right thing that worked and then learn from that to keep building on top of it to make you know more interesting things. Okay. okay. What are uh, some of your security habits? Uh, two-factor auth whenever available. Um, Long passwords. Uh, don't provide any external service to your network <laughs> at all. <laughs> uh, anything that you think the public needs to see, host on someone else's infrastructure and, and keep away from your data. Uh, let's see. Good firewalls. Uh, I like a vast antivirus because it talks like a pirate. 
Yeah, uh, it does. It has talk like a pirate mode, which most antivirus products don't. They're most of them are, are usually equally bad. Um, use uh, Ultra Block. Oh, no, wait, they have another name for it now. It's uh, uBlock Origin when you surf the web to keep the nasties away. Um, only go to uh, weird websites inside of a VM, <laughs> especially when you're, you know, researching anything that looks like malware or ends with RU. Or is an uh, Adobe product, you know? Yes. Anything. Yes. Anything like that. Uh, and then of course, I think most importantly, it's, uh, keep your, keep your work systems and your personal systems separate. So yeah, that's a good one. I'm sure, you, sure you've never had to worry about that crossing line during investigations. <laughs> and so for me, it's not even so much, uh, you know, exposing personal information in investigation, but it's more that if you're doing something personal and accessing a personal website or doing personal reading, those are the sites that are probably more likely to have ad based malware than the technical sites that you may be reading for work. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick one tool for cybersecurity and forensics, what would it be and why? Uh, so I would say it used to be uh, Perl, but now it's Python. Um, I would say the best thing you could do is to just start learning some very basic Python and, uh, and start looking at all of the different uh, libraries and tools that are out there that you can start tweaking to start making your life easier uh, rather than trying to you know force everything you do into some kind of commercial suite. Gotcha. All right. Well, David, this has been great. I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, everywhere. <laughs> Seriously, you have like four websites, a bunch of books. Just uh, Probably Google. the easiest thing is uh, I need to update the blog more often, but hecfblog.com is all my historical writings, and I need to start getting back on that. Uh, and then learndfire.com is the book site. That's where all the book resources are. Uh, and then everything else, you know, that I'm doing these days is you can pretty much find it me on Twitter, uh, HECF blog on Twitter. And then of course the podcast of forensic lunch. Yeah. How often are you doing the forensic lunches these days? So I try to do it two times a month. We were doing it once a week, but we found that it was hard to actually keep lining up people who wanted to talk. You'd be surprised at the number of people in our industry who are just deathly afraid of a live interview. Yeah, I've, I've found that. <laughs> Well, great. I um, I will definitely put all that um, information in the show notes uh, so people can, can more easily find you. So that'll be up there. And uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And uh, thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.